You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, it's a question that really wasn't ever meant to be answered. But you know scientists, when they get excited about something. So how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll pop? We've all probably heard about the famous War of the Worlds radio broadcast panic at some point, but did that actually happen? The surprisingly interesting history of the rolling suitcase. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, I know a lot about you. Like a scary amount of information about you. I would say that's probably true. But there's one thing, my friend, I do not know about you. What is your favorite candy? Uh, I'm kind of into like the peanut butter sort of based stuff, you know? So give me like the that's Reese's That's a terrible cup. answer. Now you need an actual <laughs> thing. Like you don't just say, I'm kind of into uh, sugary sweets. <laughs> you basically said you like all candies. <laughs> have, I, have I ever told you about how I used to eat Reese's Cups whenever I was a kid? No. All you right, pop out so the middle. I'm surprised my parents didn't institutionalize me for this. But what I used to do was I would take my teeth and I would like sort of crack the chocolate and shave it off of the peanut butter. All right. So I would eat just the chocolate off the peanut butter. And then I would take the peanut butter and I would roll it in my hands. Okay. Into a perfect ball. And then I would eat the ball of peanut butter. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm not proud of it. I'm not saying it to you to like as, as, a, as I'm not bragging to you. I'm not being mean. You're disgusting. <laughs> You're disgusting. Well, I'd say that mine, Jay, has to be Reese Cup eggs. Okay, they only come around once a year, around Easter. And they have the perfect balance of both chocolate and peanut butter. Now, I will say that I somewhat recently tried my first Reese pumpkin, since we're coming into the fall and Halloween spooky season. And I got to admit, pretty close to the egg... But not the egg. The pumpkin's too much peanut butter. There's too much peanut butter. Like, to me, the tree is the best one at Christmas because it's just enough chocolate peanut butter uh, mix. It goes egg, pumpkin, distant third tree. (laughs) But, Jay, while we all have our favorite candy, something that's near and dear to our hearts for various reasons, some candy types are just more famous than others. And love them or hate them, Tootsie Roll Pops are one of those candies. Invented in 1931 by Luke Wisegrom, and he literally thought of this, Jay, because he was chewing a Tootsie Roll and decided to apparently simultaneously lick his daughter's sucker, which is equal parts gross and weird. (laughs) But Jay, invented in 1931, the Tootsie Roll Pop, a candy consisting of a sucker with a Tootsie Roll center, if you've never had one by chance, is famous for a couple of reasons. One is its undefeated ability to destroy the roof of my mouth, and the other is its iconic television commercials that began in the 1970s. Jay, these commercials featured the Tootsie Roll Al, who, no pun intended, you can still find on classic retro t-shirts right now at your local mall. The Al answered the question from a young boy. It was a simple question. The boy asked him, 
How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Pop? The owl would take the sucker from the boy, count to three, and then crunch, chew the rest of the sucker. Jay, while the question was always obviously meant to be a rhetorical joke, folks have consistently taken it upon themselves in the years since the launch of the Tootsie Roll Pop to try and answer it. So today, we find out. How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Pop? In 2015, scientists from New York University, using research focused on how materials dissolve when hit with a constant water flow. Okay, so think rocks in a waterfall or medication, perhaps, that you swallow. They concluded that the answer was, uh, you have any guesses? I mean, I don't even know where to start. Uh, like, if you told me it was a thousand, I'd believe you. If you told me it was a hundred, I'd believe you. Un- a thousand? <laughs> well, I just... You nailed it! <laughs> Using this type of model made the discovery process easy. Applied mathematics professor Leif Ristroff told ABC News at the time of the study. To conduct the research, though, Jay, the scientists didn't actually count literal licks because they found it more difficult than they thought to resist pulling a Tootsie Roll owl and just biting the darn thing. We started to test it, and it's hard, Ristroff admitted to ABC. Resisting the temptation to just bite into one was very tough. But Jay, as hard as it may seem to believe, the NYU scientists were not the first team to, some would argue, waste their time, and attempt to solve this question. Yes, more people spent actual time trying to figure this out. And NYU's findings of a thousand licks are not universally accepted as the true number. Other groups argue that they, in fact, know the truth. Like the group of Purdue University engineering students who built a licking machine that got to the center of the pop in just 341 licks. Or the University of Michigan students who claim that they got to the center in 411. Students at Bellarmine University in Kentucky used actual human liquors and found that the flavor of the Tootsie Roll Pop made a difference. It took 148 licks to get to the center of an orange pop and 198 to do the same with grape. Ultimately, though, Jay, maybe the narrator of the famous commercial campaign is correct. After the owl bites and chews up the pop, the narrator asks again, so how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Pop? Before answering himself, the world may simply never know. It's amazing to me how recycled the joke was of the owl biting into the Tootsie Pop because it happened every commercial and you knew he was going to do it every time. So it was never a surprise. But you think about like mascots today like the Geico Gecko or like the progressive guy or whatever. Like they're always just like, we got to up it. We got to make a new joke. And they just threw that owl on there every time. He's like, oh, he's going to do it. And then he just bite it. <laughs> it was like, it was just over and over again. And for some reason, we just kept watching it. I want to know more about the licking machine. Like, where are those now? What are they using them for? I don't think you want to know what, what the licking machine's doing <laughs> these days. So, Dave, you and I this weekend both watched the docuseries on Netflix called Untold. Uh, which centered on uh, football player Manti Teo and the whole scandal that erupted a few years ago uh, whenever his story of his girlfriend who had passed away uh, was found out to be fake, that his girlfriend did not exist. Uh, and it sort of like became this major news story. Yeah, um, uh, I really loved it. And you feel very bad 
for Manti Teo yes. as, as you watch it unfold. You know, our generation is really the first generation to deal with this kind of what they call catfishing, where someone pretends to be someone they're not online. And I thought it was honestly just brave of him to embrace it the way he did and be honest. Yeah, the last scene was very emotional, like it very much uh, stuck with me. Yeah, and I got to say, ultimately to me, it was a, a show about forgiveness. Yeah, and w- one of the things, though, that I found really interesting about it was the the guys who put together the article that exposed this whole thing uh, at a publication called Deadspin, uh, they came on and kind of said like look we were never trying to ruin this guy's life we were never trying to just embarrass him we thought at the end of the day that it was a story about how the media didn't fact check anything right that like all these media publications were just citing themselves and just uh kept this cycle of this lie going without without ever actually like checking in and seeing was this real so Dave, all this fact-checked kind of talking and media and stuff like that kind of got me thinking about how this story that I had heard my whole life, I found out wasn't real. So we got to go back a little bit. So in October of 1938, a guy named Orson Welles was part of this dramatic reading of the 1889 H.G. Wells novel, War of the Worlds, that was broadcasted on CBS radio. And I don't know about you, Dave, but any time I've heard about this event, I've always heard next that the broadcast sent Americans who heard it into a panic. Listeners tuned in only to be convinced that the reading was actually real, that America was actually being invaded by aliens, and the nation collectively freaked out. Have you heard this same thing? Yep. And I actually, back in the day, I don't teach 11th grade history anymore, but back in the day, I used to teach this because like, my teacher taught it to me, right? that this was something that actually happened. But the only problem with this narrative, Dave, one that has been told over and over throughout history, is that it never really actually happened. The first thing you got to realize about War of the Worlds in the year 1938 is that this was not an unknown story in the first place to most Americans. H.G. Wells had secured his position as one of the greatest science fiction writers of all time long before he even wrote War of the Worlds. The novel had been read far and wide across the country up to this point, and really the broadcast itself wasn't even that widely listened to at all. Radio ratings report that only roughly 2% of those surveyed even reported that they had tuned into War of the Worlds. And on top of that, the broadcast itself announced more than once that it was a dramatic reading, leaving no gray area for the listeners to take the broadcast literally. So then if that's true, if people were not running around in a mass hysteria about War of the Worlds on the radio, then how did this myth even get started in the first place? Because really, Dave, the rumor was immediate. The headline in the Chicago Herald read, Radio Fake Scares the Nation. The New York Daily News ran with the headline, Fake Radio War Stirs Terror Through U.S. And the New York Times published an editorial titled, Terror by Radio About the Event. You have to understand the context of the newspaper industry at the time, though. Radio was this newer medium, and it was taking some of the traditional places of newspaper. W. Joseph Campbell of American University wrote for BBC that the so-called panic broadcast brought newspapers an exceptional opportunity to censure radio, a still new medium that was becoming a serious competitor in providing news and advertising. On top of that, Dave, newspapers, they just wanted to sell papers and words like terror and panic and the headline. Well, that pretty much did the trick. The story about a broadcast about a Martian invasion inspiring panic seems to be completely made up. In fact, Dave, not a single piece of documentation from a hospital or any branch of law enforcement regarding the broadcast exists. 
The only documented phone calls about the broadcast that exist are one simply asking for more information about the show. The panic seems to be entirely created by newspapers with no basis in fact. In an article written for todayifoundout.com, Matt Blitz points out that Orson Welles himself even believed these claims and apologized for inciting panic. And on the power of radio, Orson Welles said this, quote, We were fed up with the way in which everything that came over this new magic box, the radio, was being swallowed. People, you know, do suspect what they read in the newspapers and what people tell them. But when the radio came, and I suppose now television, anything that came through that new machine was believed. So in a way, our broadcast was an assault on the credibility of that machine. We wanted people to understand that they shouldn't take any opinion pre-digested, and they shouldn't swallow everything that came through the tap, whether it was the radio or not. But as I say, it was only a partial experiment. We had no idea of the extent of the thing. And in a way, Dave, this reminds me of how social media platforms have sort of faced similar challenges. The idea of a new medium and how we receive information from that medium, the novelty of it is kind of a challenge for us. That quote from Wells sort of reads like something we'd read about misinformation on Facebook today, for example. But I think this story, it really stands as a good example of how misinformation can just be accepted and spread as fact for decades without ever really being fact-checked. Well, Jay, it blows my mind and honestly kind of bothers me that this isn't true because this is one of those things i've been told my entire life kind of like if you eat more carrots it improves your vision i think that's actually true though that's not true well don't let my kids listen to this because that's how i get them to eat carrots tell them that they won't have to wear glasses soon (laughs) apparently it's true if you ate like a million carrots a day okay so, I mean, I don't know how many carrots your kids are eating, but I mean, not so that many. technically you're not lying to them. If they eat carrots from morning to night, they'll get halfway there. Now, you kind of put some words in my mouth. I don't tell them my kids wear glasses. I don't tell them that they won't have to wear glasses. I just tell them that it will make their eyes better, which basically means you won't have to always wear glasses <laughs> in their minds. Jay, a truly good innovation can change the world. Like, think about your everyday existence, okay? Everything from the car you get into when you go to work to the spork that you eat your KFC mashed potatoes with, innovation is everywhere. And actually, I just saw something the other day that KFC now, apparently, you have to ask for these, but they have now made many sporks that can go on the end of your fingers, and so you can use them as little finger shovels. That's just disturbing. On a lot that's of, where that's we more are disturbing than the way that I used to eat a Reese cup. Like that's worse. <laughs> well, uh, you're giving yourself a little too much credit there. How you ate that Reese cup is going to keep me up tonight. <laughs> Sickening. But Jay, when a good innovation comes along, sometimes it smacks us right in the face. Like, why hadn't we already thought of something like this? Why did it take so long? Well, today, my friend, I present to you an innovation that, in hindsight, looks like the biggest no-brainer ever. But actually, as with most interesting things that we care about on this show, it has a history that is a bit more complicated than it seems. Today, my friend, we discuss the rolling suitcase. Jay, on the heels of the coronavirus pandemic, our world is enjoying a travel boom. And this trend doesn't seem that it'll reverse anytime soon. According to Forbes, the International Air Transport Association estimates that 7.8 billion people will travel on an airplane in the year 2036, which would double from the 4 billion that flew in 2017. 
Well, there are many reasons for this. Obviously, folks still traveling like crazy after a long period of not being able to, being one of those, along with a growing footprint of world trade, more airline choices. I mean, the list goes on and on. But Jay, there's another reason that travel has grown through the years. The development of the rolling suitcase. And the rolling suitcase may be the ultimate no-brainer invention. Coming in all shapes and sizes, the suitcase has empowered travelers of every age to travel faster and to travel cheaper. But Jay, while the wheel was invented like 6,000 years ago, and the modern suitcase has been around since like the 1890s, the two weren't officially combined until 1972. A man by the name of Bernard Sado was traveling with his family when he noticed an airport employee in San Juan using a wheeled luggage rack to move heavy items around the airport. Sado couldn't get the image out of his head. So when he returned home, he started on what would become the first official patent for the rolling suitcase. So why did it take until 1972? When this story is referenced, it's often joked that we put a man on the moon before we put wheels on a suitcase. Was it really just a blind spot for innovation? Well, perhaps. I'm sure that played into it at least a little bit. But the idea had been brought up before and then promptly shut down by companies before it ever made it to the production floor. Jay, most historians agree that the real reason it took until the 1970s was more complicated. Social acceptance. Lugging heavy suitcases was simply seen as a man's work. I was told that men will never accept suitcases with wheels, Sado was told as doors were slammed in his face, shopping the wheeled suitcase from company to company. It was a very macho thing for men to carry their luggage. But Jay, as the 1970s rolled along, men did in fact start to use rolling suitcases. And now if you walk around any kind of airport in America, Everyone has a rolling suitcase. So, Jay, all of this really proves what you and I already know, that in general, us men are kind of wimpy. Yeah, I mean, what makes me feel more like a man than lugging a 50-pound suitcase to the airport, like getting all sweaty in my work shirt and, you know, trying to make it to a gate on time, like... It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> like today's modern man, as in us, like we love skipping things. Exactly. You know. You know what I mean. Like it makes me feel better if I can catch the elevator. That I don't have to take fifteen flights of steps. No, I want to prove to all my coworkers that I can take the stairs. That I'm a real man. <laughs> and that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jason, and I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week. I don't know if your brain operates like mine. So I have songs always going through yeah. my head. But I mean, I'll have songs that I haven't heard in a long time and that I don't like going through my head. Like right now, the song going through my head is, hey, a little bit of chicken fry, <laughs> I go beer on That's Friday probably, night. Like if I had to rank my most hated songs of all time, I'd start with that one. I'd be like, do I want it to be 10? Like do I want it to be five? But I would start with it and then I'd start counting backwards. <laughs> Have you ever listened to the bridge of that song? Like it quickly turns from like, 
Like the chorus is like, yeah, it's like it gets patriotic. Yeah, like the chorus is like, hey, I'm a I'm a guy just like you, and I like to have fun. But then the bridge quickly turns to like the national anthem. Like it's like, okay, and all the people that died so I can wear jeans. Like we want to thank them. And then it's like, whoa, this took a turn. Like <laughs> I was just trying to relax on a Friday night. 